Good morning, everybody. My name is Mary Fee Fleece. Uh, I teach history, political science, and sociology, and I'm the College's Study Abroad Coordinator. I'm, in, I'm just introducing myself. My colleagues will introduce themselves uh, shortly. And we are here to talk to you today about putting 2020 in some historical context. And we have some, some different titles that we came up for this, uh, for our presentation today, our, our discussion today, um, that, you know, the, the year that continues to, to seems to seep into 2021, because 2021 is already starting off as to be a banner year. So um, with that, I will turn it over to my, my colleague, uh, Jim McIntyre. Hi, I'm Jim McIntyre. I teach history at Moraine Valley. And yeah, um, we've got a number of colorful titles, such as 2020, the year that would never end. Uh, <laughs> and I will pass along to my colleague, Josh Fulton. Hi, I'm Josh Fulton as well. I teach history uh, at Moraine Valley Community College. Uh, and yeah, I'm trying to think of something even wittier. Uh, the year... <laughs> <laughs> The, the year-long dumpster fire, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one either way, uh, but we'll Continuing try to put apocalypse. it in. That's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll do. Friends. That's right. Uh, we'll, we'll do the best we can, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. But the funny thing is how, like, I, I, I had, I struggled, I don't know about, about the two of you, but I wanted to include some 2021 stuff on here because already 2021 has been, you know, to use a, I, I like to use a different term, but I can't, but it's been a bit of a mess. Um, so, but we have so many things in 2020 that uh, we just have a, 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 so many jewels to choose from. So, um, would any of you like to start uh, in terms of like something, something, things that were near and dear to your hearts that stuck out to you in terms of putting 2020 into some, into some context? Well, obviously I think the big one off the top is the pandemic, right? COVID-19 and literally shutting down the world for much of the year. And so I think that one thing we can also talk about is the idea that, you know, our students, I, I know my students ask me often when it's something like this, well, you know, what are historians going to think in the future? And, and I always try to remind them, well, that's a fun question, but we really don't know because it kind of depends on what happens from here. Um, Mary and I were talking briefly, and, and this might be a good segue for you to pick up on, Josh, but, you know, until very recently, the, the, influenza pandemic was something that had pretty much fallen off the table because you know when you add in the the great war the great depression and world war ii it was just one other bad thing that happened at the like we're talking about 2020 as this catalog of bad things you know it's it's easy to lose sight of of some when you have something else come down the road that seems even worse um so i think you know a big part of it too is is looking at perspective so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and thank you for, for, for tossing the ball that way. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think of sort of two things, you know, one to your point of uh, given what we do for, for a living, often I have been asked, you know, what would be a historical time that you would want to go back to? Uh, that you would want to walk around in and what would you find sort of interesting or engaging with it? And outside of the fact that I like air conditioning and, you know, uh, lots of other modern amenities that, you know, would make me not want to leave, uh, of living through history wasn't all that fun. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we tend to want to look back positively on a number of, of different things of, oh, the twenties, they look so great. The music was wonderful and the gin was flowing, but for a lot of folks, it wasn't that fun. Uh, and so it presumes that you're just going to get treated well there and no one's going to want to hurt you and sort of that kind of thing. And so, yeah, part of this has been a an active historicization of looking back on the influenza pandemic and going, oh, you know, that was horrible. Uh, you know, that was a really, 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 really terrible time, right? Where you have 200,000 Americans who die uh, in October of 1918 alone uh, of, uh, you know, you have you know, somewhere between 600 and 750,000 Americans die, uh, you know, in the course of about 18 months, uh, you know, in, in 1918 and 1919. So yeah, part of that is that conversation with students and others about, you know, connecting this to the pandemic. And I think uh, of 1918-19, the other thing that I've been thinking about with this conversation is also the, 
the sort of social media trope, which in some ways we acknowledge with the titles of, and I'm sure you probably have all had this conversation too with, with individuals of, you know, when folks kind of put out rhetoric on social media and in other places, which folks are doing even a lot more of that now because, you know, most of us are at home. There's this feeling that 2020 is the worst year ever, right? That this is the worst year that's ever happened. And so in some ways, you know, it's important for us then to be able uh, to contextualize it uh, because is it bad? Yeah. You know, was it not so great for a lot of folks? Yeah. Right. In the big scheme, I think, is it the worst year ever? No, you know, it's not a lot of fun, uh, but is it the worst year that's ever existed? No. And I, I think that's one of the things that, that we can do uh, is to, you know, kind of be able to sort of see it within that, that context of time. Um, forgive me. I, I muted myself because my dogs have, of course have decided to engage in WWE wrestling behind me. So I wanted to make sure it was not distracting to either one of you. So forgive me for any noises that might come out of them from, from here and out. Um, yeah, I would definitely agree with both of you. And I think the thing I've been thinking of, and I don't want to start off by being uh, Debbie Downer already, but I guess I am, um, is I'm just wondering if like 50 years from now, this is almost going to be not even that big of a deal. In the sense that what else is coming down the pipeline? Are there going to be so many other, because I mean, we're already being told that, you know, this is another pandemic could be 10 years down the road or even less. I mean, SARS was, was that what, 2002 or was that later in, two, in the 2000s? Um, and I mean, and pardon me, did you early 2000s? Yeah, 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 early 2000s. Um, <clears throat> so I, I just kind of wonder if between the wildfires that are raging and the environmental changes that are happening so rapidly, I kind of wonder if putting this in, into context historically, it's going to be in there, but it's going to be like a paragraph in a history book as opposed to like for us right now, this is the dominating every single headline that we're looking at. Um, but that's just something I, which is kind of scary, a scary thought, right? Um, that is something that I've been, I've been considering, like, wh what is this really going to mean 20 or even, you know, 20, 30 years down the line? Um, so I don't know. That's that, that in and of itself is, is a little petrifying, <laughs> but I guess if you put it though, I wonder if you put the, 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 the statistics that you mentioning, you mentioned Josh, the stats earlier, um, just it, it being kind of relative in terms, I know still when you they estimate 30 to 50 million worldwide, um, they still don't know precisely how many died in the pandemic overall of influenza in um, uh, the 19 teens. But I wonder if, if like at the end of this, because this is what we're going to be approaching 500,000 shortly. Um, and I just wonder if like, rel if, they, if you take relative, relative to the modern day um, medicine that we have and all that, I wonder how, the, if, if there's a way to kind of even those out and see how those stack up one against the other, if that's even gonna be possible. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, you know, part of it is with a lot of these statistics, it's so hard to have accurate numbers, especially mm -hmm. from back in 1918, 1919. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, especially in the first wave, you don't have, as many individual, you know, medical training in 1918, of course, is vastly different than what it is now. Uh, you know, there's something like, I think it was like only one or two medical schools in America in 1918 actually required you to have a college degree for admission, you know, sort of that kind of thing. Uh, and so causes of death, you know, are, are named so very, very differently. Um, but in terms of your point about proportionality and sort of thinking like that, that will be an interesting discussion of the manner in which modern healthcare has advanced of you know, many individuals who, you know, sadly may have passed away years ago, um, have been able to live, you know, fuller lives and fruitful lives. And that's been a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful advancement. That's, you know, why one of the, the good things about science and the good things about all this. Uh, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see that sort of played out. And, you know, I was also thinking kind of while you were talking about, you know, there, there's a, a common tendency to want to equate, you know, sort of total numbers like this, sort of historically, right, sort of looking at, um, you know, putting them in that context of like, you know, I think I saw recently, you know, the 450, you know, now to 500, you know, that's more individuals than we lost in World War II, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, you know, kind of thinking about it sort of that way with the idea being that maybe we should be taking this a lot more seriously uh, given, you know, the reality of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, as you were talking, Josh, though, it made me think that 
when if we look to the future and how historians will look back on the pandemic, there's there's going to be debate too about the numbers even from our pandemic. Are they over recorded? Are they under recorded? And a lot of that's going to come down. In, in some respects, at least, to the subjective view of whichever historian is looking at the numbers themselves, you know, um, and trying to use whatever metric they design to tease out what the actual uh, fatality rates were. So, and I think that's, again, another one of those big questions, you know, that comes up with these events is how do you get down? Like, you know, when we talk about World War II and we talk about casualty numbers, you know, what are, what are those really? And how do you, how do you count them in the sense that do you count the person, the people who just died in whatever incident or do you, people who were injured and their injury eventually was terminal and, and so on and so forth, you know? So it, it kind of becomes what metric you apply to the event. Um, and, and that can dramatically affect the context that we look at it in as well. I and think, oh. go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. I was just, I think that's, that, and that's happening right now even, right? I mean, yeah. the arguments that people are having with one another, like, you know, just, does, a, does a death count? If it's a, uh, my husband and I were having this discussion because he was saying, well, if a person has a heart attack uh, or if a person has cancer and then they, they die of cancer like, and they get COVID, and I said, well, if they still, it's the same way that my mother died of ultimately of heart failure, but she had diabetes as her underlying cause. Both things were listed on her death certificate. She died of both things. So it's the same thing with COVID that people are saying, well, just because you may have had, you had cancer as your underlying cause, but you got COVID, COVID hastened your death. You might've lived six months longer had you not gotten COVID. Um, and so there's all this discussion even now about these deaths, you know, but it, I've had this discussion with many people, unfortunately, who are saying, and of course this gets into our information literacy, our information um, lack of literacy, <laughs> illiteracy, um, where people are just not accepting um, facts and, 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 and figures. And I would say, well, if you look at just the amount of people who died last year and you take them next to people who died, like, in, I'm sorry, 2019 versus 2020, there's a pretty big blip. <laughs> so, I mean, no matter what you want to call it, whether they died of a motorcycle accident or they died of whatever it might be, if that motorcycle accident guy had COVID when he died, that blip is, is significant. And, and, and no matter what, it's still higher than what it would have been for just the common or ordinary flu. So that's just my little two cents. It, it aggravates me because I've been having this discussion with many people. <laughs> I, I think your point is, is, is well taken, uh, Mary. I mean, I think yours and Jim's points are well taken of, you know, Jim's point about, you know, folks looking to, to historians and the, what kind of historians sort of they're going to look to. And then this idea of information literacy and the importance of it, you know, certainly with the wide profligation of, you know, the QAnon conspiracy theorists of the world and all other kinds of different groups and different, you know, sort of streams of consciousness. Uh, this is a real, you know, existential threat in many ways. You know, one of the things that, you know, in thinking before this, uh, that I was sort of coming to is, is the idea of looking to historians and do people look to historians? Do they look for context uh, and do they value it, right? And there are some who do, right? There are some who, who look to, to scholars, who look to historians, who look to, to individuals to be able to contextualize things in a, a critical and, and thoughtful way. There are those who don't because they think that uh, historians are, are relatively kooky, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh, that were, uh, were sort of that, you know, that, that uncle who only has, you know, sort of trivia about the, this, you know, the battle of Gettysburg or the battle of Jutland or something like that, that that's what history means to them is the buff kind of thing. Uh, you know, if you, you spend enough time on social media, right, you'll, you'll even see this amongst, you know, relatively well-educated people, right? This idea that, you know, historians aren't going to, in the future, aren't going to believe, uh, you know, what they read about 2020, which in some ways I think is, is, is rather unkind to historians, because for the most part, the idea is that we have a pretty good ability when it comes to information literacy and the ability to think sort of critically, and we're going to have a sense of understanding. I mean, yeah, we're going to look at the Bernie Sanders meme and go, wait, what? Uh, but then we'll figure it out. Uh, you know, it, it, it'll take us a second, but then we'll get it because we're relatively smart folks. But to the, you know, to, to your point about which historian you're reading, 
I think one of the the other parts of 2020 that's a big, you know, sort of a big deal is was that whole 1776 commission uh, and and the 1776 report and, and all of that. Uh, and, and this idea that we need to sort of from a, a national perspective, according to those who were on it, they didn't really have a historian of any salt on the commission, was the idea that, you know, we need to remake the American foundational story in order to properly be pro-American, which is functionally what, you know, that's propagandistic. That's not actual, you know, literal truth. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's the weaponization of history, uh, which is coming to hurt us, I think, is something we need to very much so be cognizant of and aware of. So would that be another title, 2020, the year that weaponized history? But, I mean, I, but I agree. Yeah. And I think that's a, an incredibly well taken point in that um, we have facts and then we have the interpretation of those facts. And, you know, we all three of us have, have seen that sort of grand narrative of American history. And all three of us, I think, kind of lean back with a large dose of skepticism. <laughs> um, and, and I'm being incredibly diplomatic here, obviously. Um, but, you know, it, it, but it's not in, in a sense, it's nothing new. I think, though, that, that to, to your point, the use of social media, the mass and rapid dissemination of this alternative to truth narrative, if you will, right? It's counterfactual narrative um, that gets out there. And again, it's, it's that idea of, you know, whoever gets, again, to, to use a sort of very dated expression, whoever gets the scoop first in their paper kind of tells the story, right? Gets that first impression. And I think that's a really big problem because good history doesn't work that way. You know, it's it's a meticulous, time-consuming process of research and fact-checking and verification before we come forward with something in the hope that what we come forward with has its own objective value because it's been vetted so thoroughly. Um, and, and so I think you do have currently these two just at diametrically opposed approaches to depictions of the past and even depictions of the present that will again be part of the grist for the historian's mill down the road. I think you're raising an interesting point with that too just because you know in American government we talk about the role of citizen journalists in the media and the role they're having in shaping how we look at things and I was thinking of, of a couple different things on the one hand you've got your positives something like if you didn't have citizen journalists would we have gotten that camera footage of George Floyd and what was happening you know in in real time while they were while all these people were gathered around watching this man die um would we have gotten that if somebody was not staying there filming it um as a counter to that I also remember and I'm sure you guys could tell me what you were doing that same weekend if you remember in the aftermath that was what the 25th of May I think the George Floyd killing uh, nice. murder and then that weekend after was Memorial Day weekend and I remember I was, we were coming back from, we'd gone uh, to Starved Rock and then I started getting all, my phone started blowing up, if you will, um, with people saying, oh my God, there's, there, there are riots happening everywhere. There's, there's, uh, there's, you know, chaos everywhere. And the rumor mill began because Facebook was blowing up. People write, were writing on Facebook that at Orland Mall, there were looters who were ransacking the entire Orland Mall. That there were uh, people who were ransacking, and I live here like in Frankfort, Tinley Park, Mokina, Will County. Jim and I are kind of neighbors. Um, Mokina, or over at um, Brookside Marketplace on 191st in Harlem, that was being ransacked. And there were all these rumors that were just flying around that there were gangs of people who were coming. And of course there were coded language being used, right? Gangs of people from the South side being coming in, were gonna, looking to cause trouble and, and crazy. And people were repeating them left and right. People were listening to the police scanners and interpreting them, right? Like, you know, a mind is a terrible thing to develop without help. They're listening to these police scanners, thinking that they could understand what was going on with them and, and not really knowing. Um, it's the same way that my, my friend Maria, who's a doctor, says that, you know, everyone now is an MD because they can go on to Google. <laughs> we were all kind of, so it's the same type of thing. And what we're talking about, even with historians, putting it into this context. So there's kind of this, this good and this bad that I see with it. On the one hand, we would never be getting access to these, to these, um, these, these elements of history that are happening right in front of us, but at the same time, 
the way that they're being interpreted and then therefore causing people to act in a certain way that's also affecting history um, is, is a, a little bit concerning and, and alarming too. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that the, the weaponization of information, the weaponization of history is necessarily brand new in 2020. I mean, I think that we can say that the, uh, uh, the lost cause folks, uh, you know, certainly uh, have made quite a go of, of, of the weaponization of, of information really since the end of the Civil War, you know, but arguably... We'll, we're still cleaning up their mess now, uh, you know, uh, and, and that I think forms part of that long legacy of a, a climate of a racialized understanding of aspects of, of America that shapes much of the conversation around, you know, incidents and, you know, events such as the the, the tragic, the killing of, of George Floyd and the death of Breonna Taylor and so many other individuals uh, that it's that, you know, sort of weaponization that that leads individuals into these actions and into these moments and into these events uh, like, you know, sort of what you're describing. And oh, yeah, that that last week of May, first week or two of June uh, is uh, that was a time unlike any other. Yeah. And I think we still see that the, the fallout of the citizen journalist versus the the historian. You know, as we as we watch a representative being stripped of all her committee appointments because she denies these school shootings that would have been rampant in this century as well. Um, so, and 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 as both of you are talking, you know, I think. As, as we engage with the race issue, we, we could also be looking at one of these watershed moments in history, you know, and, and I've had students over the years say, wow, the French Revolution seems pretty cool. I think, yeah, from a distance of 200 years, you know, like being on a street in Paris during the terror, no thank you. And I think, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is that, that, that jumble of fact and rumor. Um, that, that disquieting nature of, of moments of over long overdue, but to possibly tumultuous change, you know? Um, and, and when you're sitting in the middle of it, it, it really doesn't look cool. Um, you know, it may be when you see the outcome that there are positive, that there are positive outcomes that occur as a result, you know, would I have wanted to be a peasant in 1750s France? No, thank you. But by the 1850s, you know, unlike many other spots in the world, all French farmers owned their own land. This is a good thing, you know, but, but the process of getting from point A to point B was, was really bloody and terror, ter horrifying for those who went through it and deadly for many who went through it. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, those, those, you know, if we are in fact in a watershed moment, there's there's a lot of that potential as well. And I think one other potential to to take off your point, Jim, which is a good point about the idea of a watershed moment. I think this was maybe 2020 could maybe be categorized as as the year that white people woke up and realized what black people were dealing with every single day of their lives, right? Because um, it was like black people are patiently like, yes, yes, we deal with this every single day, getting pulled over, and white people are like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening! Like this is terrible, and it's like, uh, you know, welcome to the party. They've been dealing with this for for for, for centuries, right? Hence the 1619 project of trying to put history in the context of of, of history starting then, when the first slave ship was brought over. Um, so I, I definitely think that that this might be, you know, and and just like. Other movements have been in the past. Until you get more buy-in from the general public, um, then I think that it, it, it it's it's difficult to kind of make progress. But I do feel like we might. I'm hoping that we might start seeing some actual lasting change occurring because of the fact that I think more people realize, like, oh my god, I had no idea that this happened. People who were otherwise um, not bad people, just not just not not even. Um, I wouldn't even call them necessarily racist people, just people who were ignorant of what was going on around them and didn't realize that this is what was happening to people next to them. They have prejudices, like we all do, but didn't realize that that you and I, we talked about this in, the, in our um, 1919 discussion that for one of our colleagues, 
you know, her cousins have to drive around with their wallets on their dashboard because if they ever get pulled over by the police, they want to have their wallets in full view so they never have to pull, they never have to reach for their wallet in their glove compartment or below because they're afraid of getting shot. So that awareness, awareness I think, came to a lot of people that had not been there before um, as a result of some of the events that happened last year. It, thinking about what both of you are, are sort of saying, you're sort of having these two thoughts that kind of come to mind. One is the, you know, to your point about, you know, is 2020 the year that some white individuals are waking up? Yeah. Are all of them? No. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think about the the communities that I, I grew up in, which were, you know, very nice and, you know, relatively, you know, well-to-do. I mean, I grew up in Brookfield, uh, but, you know, it's next to Riverside and Western Springs and, you know, all of them are, they're, they're overwhelmingly white communities and many of them after May and June of, of, of 2020, you know, you saw, and I live not far away and I still have family there. And so you, you know, spending time around them at that time, you saw, you know, these sort of ad hoc protests and people sort of putting out signs and sort of all of that. And, you know, it, that very 2020 phrase of virtue signaling uh, was something that sort of came to mind of the idea of, uh are they, you know, it, that's, that's great that, that they seem to, okay, they're, they're having conversations and that's fundamentally a good thing. Okay. Is that going to change the tenor of the community? Is that going to change the tenor of if someone is walking through town and they don't really look like they might necessarily, you know, if you're, you know, what's, if somebody's going to look at it, well, that seems out of place. Well, why, uh, you know, sort of that, that kind of thing, um, you know, and, and, and will they, ultimately change. And then to your point about, uh, yeah, the, the 1619 sort of uh, project, you know, thinking about how, you know, yeah, in state legislatures now, there are bills to ban it in public schools uh, that, that you're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, and, you know, thinking about how, you know, maybe one of the, the scary aspects of 2020 is the the legitimization of the weaponization of information, uh, of the weaponization of, of these falsehoods and sort of that kind of thing, of that the empowerment of it, and that it's not really about history, it's about power. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the other sort of interesting parts of this too. Jim, were you gonna, did you wanna to respond to that? I, I was actually gonna say, and to, to build on both of your points, I think we, where we've seen some people We've seen some white people wake up and, and go, what, really? You know, we've also seen, and again, you know, we've, we're talking about this every day, right? We're seeing also bills coming up now about, you know, extremism, domestic terrorism. Some, some people have doubled down or tripled down, you know, and, and I think that, that, you know, we are definitely uh, bifurcating society in a lot of ways or, or even, you know, sort of smashing it into into multifaceted ships you know and and the i think one of the problems with quarantine and this information dissemination we've been discussing is if you really choose to you can live in isolation with your own little welt shallong for as for as long as this goes on and and watch nothing but that you know um i i've have friends who you know it's like well where do you get your news well just from this one outlet because that's the only one you can trust and it's like why well the, all the others lie well how do you know <laughs> um yours isn't lying you know and and you know to to disclose a secret from my dark past right i actually was a broadcast cable major for a while i was, was going to be a dj long story but one thing that that has proved of infinite value from all of that that has stuck with me over the years i had to take a communications law course and the first day of the course the professor said freedom of the press belongs to the owner of the press and and i that is you know so your outlet really is going to be determined by the politics of the owner and and you know, we could argue about the moral rectitude of that, but I think it's just pragmatically true. No one's, Rupert Murdoch is not going to start a media outlet that is going to be, you know, left-wing radical. It's not going to happen in this time continuum. Um, 
So I think that's something that needs to be kept in mind. And I think it's, it's an important part of our job as educators, right? When we're, when we're looking back at these events to go, well, where are you getting that information? You know, what is, mm-hmm. and what do you know about the source? You know, it's that informi- information literacy component. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, of needs, discount one source of information versus another because you know when we do when we do that research in the past you know it's like when i teach the american revolution right um there's we we all focus on the patriot view but what about the loyalists and when i talk about the loyalist view it's like well some of them had really good it wasn't that they just you know were arch conservatives it's you know they they had benefited they you know had connections to or you know they were part of an extended noble family from Britain. And so that would really be literally going against their own family for them. So that, you know, there are different sides to any moment, but I think that, yeah, when we get into this extremism of the, as you mentioned, and I think that's a really good term for it, the weaponization of history, it as part of its agenda delegitimizes any other sides to things, any mm-hmm. other interpretations. It's, it's that one is the correct one, no others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, oh, do you want to respond to that, uh, Josh? Because I was going to say something. Well, go ahead, go ahead, and then I'll, yeah. I was going to respond to something he said earlier. So if you want, if you want to respond to that. You oh, sure, sure. Okay, yeah, no, what I was going to say is, you know, as, as Jim, as you were talking, it made me think about kind of the, the growth of the term cancel culture. Uh, and how, you know, what you end up having with many of those individuals who have engaged in weaponization of information about power, you know, with this idea of the purpose about power, and that that criticism, you know, cannot be abided in that it's taken as sort of hatred of the state or hatred of a leader or hatred of, you know, X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. that when there are consequences, right? I mean, because often what you're seeing, right, is those who are embracing this kind of weaponization are articulating a vision that their vision is a legacy of the continuation of the American revolutionary story, right? That they're, that they're more American than others, right? Uh, that they're, they're more American than others. But that any consequence, right, uh, to that weaponization, any consequence to their speech, uh, any you know, sort of form of boycott or, uh, you know, you're going to be kicked off this platform or sort of this kind of thing is supposedly this attempt to cancel, right? Uh, this attempt to quote unquote cancel them. Uh, and, you know, this idea that to them, the, the, the merit of, of, of speech and of their weaponization is that they have freedom to the hilt to do whatever it is that they wish without consequence. Uh, and that that is the measure of freedom. Uh, and so, no, I, that, that's kind of what you, I was thinking of kind of as you were, were going. And so, it, you know, I think the, you know, one of the, the interesting parts of, of 2020 and into 2021 has been this reinjection into the national conversation about, you know, sort of the merits of speech, especially online uh, and kind of where do we go from, from here? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. And to, to, uh, to piggyback off that, Josh, I love how people are screaming about cancel culture as they are screaming about it publicly on, on the, the news from the boy <laughs> pulpit of Congress or wherever they are. So yeah. they're not being so canceled. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I was going to go back to what Josh was, or excuse me, what Jim was saying at the, at the beginning of, of his last comment, um, where you're saying about how just the, the, the change that it has kind of come over, um, among some white people, we'll kind of have to see how, how, how much this lasts. So maybe I'm going to go from being Debbie Downer to maybe being kind of Pollyanna-esque here, but I'm, I'm kind of wondering if we're at, if we are at a moment though, where, um, I'm hoping where the people that are, are of these, um, we're in the dying throes of those folks that are, are still screaming about the past and screaming about Confederate statues. And, you know, even though people like Robert E. Lee didn't even want a Confederate, sta- didn't want statues of himself and memorials and things like that. And, and, and others might argue with me and say, well, you know, 75 million people voted, but 70, people are not monolithic. They don't all vote for the same reason for the same thing. So there could be a, a there's a, a chunk of voters who voted for Donald Trump because of those reasons, but there are a lot of people who voted for other reasons. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that, that we're at a point where, um, 
because I, I do, I think that I, I am optimistic about the idea that I think we are moving forward, that regardless that of what people, there, there are going to be these setbacks along the way. And, and that ca the Capitol riots were a pretty, pretty big setback. But I think it's also so eye-opening for so many people too, to say like, you know, like this is what can happen. This is what's possible if we allow ourselves to go down these rabbit holes of conspiracy theories and misinformation and, um, you know, living in the past and, and glorifying a past that doesn't even exist. Right, this this doesn't even, doesn't even happen. Um, so I'm I'm hoping I do think though that, that we are at a point where we are going to be moving moving away from that. I hope I hope I could be totally wrong. Again, the, you know the internet's a very large dark place, but there's also a lot of light in it too. So we, I look I always tell my students that we have the possibilities to find. We have so much information at our fingertips. Um, it's just a question of, of teaching teaching one another how to harness that information. Um, and not necessarily getting just get and, and, and I don't know if any of you have seen uh, lately because they keep showing these these clips online and maybe they're they're coming on my YouTube feed for a reason they're coming into my little um, my my bubble that that my my YouTube feed but of people that are 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 now reformed QAnon people mm. and what's interesting to me is that a lot of these people that are are, are um, QAnon folks were people that were they're educated people they're not necessarily people that are coming across where they can barely function and are, are not can, can barely read and you know, these are people who have degrees that you know, maybe have lost jobs during the pandemic um, and who have a lot of time on their hands and are feeling demoralized and are feeling kind of downtrodden and are looking for something to feel a part of and QAnon kind of melt, help them feel a part of something and so perhaps part of this is sort of the, this search in the United States for this 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 community and and trying to find this this way of coming together again and not be so Kind of in our little our little pockets, but how to how, how to find ways to come together and and um, and not be so isolated. You know, we live in a time, and as I just said before, where we are we have so much access to seeing people, but and yet people report to be more lonely than ever. We're so lonely, and you think that we have all these mechanisms for being able to see people, and yet yet we're still saying that we're so lonely. So what does that mean about us? And I think I've just thrown a lot of stuff out there. So feel free to take extrapolate whatever you like from that, if you can extrapolate anything from that. <laughs> You want to go, Josh? Um, <laughs> uh, if, no, I, I was asking no, go ahead, because go ahead. I actually have a thought. Okay, you know, go ahead. Take your go with it. Go with it. For me, you know, and I hope this continues. I really do. That there, there was this sort of sentiment following um, the Capitol riots that, to me, was akin to sort of after the Salem witch trials. You know, like on a on a national level, we said, "What have we done?" Reckoning. You know, how we let this go way too far, you know, we, we and, and, you know, the people who sort of blew off QAnon went, oh, my, these people are really. And, and I think even people who might have been on the periphery went, oh, this is. You know, and, and I I hope that trend continues to where it's like, look, you know, let's ratchet things down. Let's ratchet things down. And, you know try and work together and i think we saw some of that we're still seeing some of that um and and you know i think that the political parties right now the the republicans are definitely you know in their own internal civil war the press is labeling it but there there's definitely a there's definitely a fight going on there um but I think it's it, more than anything, really, to me, it's a time of reckoning. Like, this is not new, right? There have been these, there, there's been this declining appeal to parts of the message of both major parties. Yes. And I think that, you know, for, for right now, the Republican fight is very open and in the media. Um, but I think at the same time that there, there definitely there's there's absolutely discord in the Democratic Party, and I think that you know this could be an opportunity for you know either multi multiplication of political parties, which might be a good thing in ways, uh, or the recasting of the current parties. But definitely, you know, like okay, if nothing else, then let's have this debate. Let's finally have this discussion that we've been trying to avoid having in these, in these representative groups for so long, but let's have it civilly. Like right. let's actually look for solutions rather than, you know, branding anyone who doesn't agree with our agenda as being, you know, 
Republican in name only, Democrat in name only, or whatever slur you want to the you know the slur du jour, if you will. Um, to I had to sneak some French Revolution in there, <laughs> um, but, but you know, like the idea of actually having an open and honest reckoning within these within these groups, doing it in a civil sense. Do you, both, Josh? I'm so sorry. I just wanted to like really quickly. Go ahead. Yeah. Do you both not think though that some kind of reckoning needs to happen within the Republican Party in terms of? You know, the Dixiecrats and those folks that left the Democratic Party in the 50s and the 60s, 40s, with 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 um, civil rights, migrated into the Republican Party and have stayed there since. I mean, to me, it seems like there's got to be some kind of a reckoning that's got to be made with some of those people that are still there. And, and, and meaning that I think that generationally, I think some of those folks have been weeded out, but that seed is still there. Right. Right. The Southern strategy that Nixon used, the Southern, that's still there. So until they make a reckoning with that. And that might mean, as you said, Jim, like a repudiation of it that might mean the breakup of the party and into a couple different parties or some more independents that maybe caucus with both, depending on, on the issue. I think that might bring us into a healthier place politically, because I think that whatever we're doing right now is just not working. This tribalism is not getting us anywhere. No. Um, and I think that might help us. But I feel like you can't. It's like truth and reconciliation, right, with South Africa. You cannot move forward unless you make a reckoning with the past. And and we've never really reconciled that past. It's still there. It's still there. And, you know, to that, to that point, uh, you know, from a broader sort of, his, you know, the broader history thing, you know, with, we're talking about 1776 and, and sort of 1619 of, and, and to that point about the QAnons of the world and their legitimization within Republicanism and, and within the Republican party of, you know, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard individuals discuss, you know, there needs to be not just a, a sort of truth and reconciliation in that way, but in some ways, that's what, that's what the purpose of history can and should be, is a truth and reconciliation, right? That those who tend to push the narrative of the 1776 commission uh, and, and report is that the purpose of it is to construct a, a proto-Americanized narrative uh, that, that serves their vision of the American ideal. Whereas, you know, 1619 is, was far more sort of saying, look, race has been a part of the American story and racialization has been a part of the American story since its founding. It doesn't mean that we hate America. All we're saying is let's just be honest about that. Uh, you know, for the most part, that's generally what it argues. Uh, of there's nothing wrong with that, although, you know, at least according to some, yes, it's, you know, a, a real true demonized hatred. I, I think there is a, a, a reckoning that, that is, is going to come, a, a conversation that will need to happen about either realignment, as Jim says, or, or the deconstruction of the party sort of as we know. Because, you know, I think about the, uh, you know, about, you know, Representative uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and the fact that, you know, she's voted off the committees, certainly, but the majority of the Republican Party still, for the most part, at least within Congress, is, you know, essentially sort of maintaining that, right? Uh, you know, is sort of saying, well, we, maybe we've gone a little far, but it's still, right? And so it, it does show that, you know, part of that 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 view and that that those theories, and aspects, there's aspects of it that live on. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know when that uh, is going to happen, right? This discussion about what that sort of actually, you know, where, where that means and where it goes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, right now there is very much so a, a reformation of ideology going on within the Republican party. And, you know, to Jim's point as well with the, within the democratic party, you know, very much so, uh, of will there be a, um, a party that looks more like, you know, is embodied more in the ideological focus of the, Bernie Sanders's of the world, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's of the world, or is it going to be more sort of in the, the centrist uh, view of, of a, say, President Biden or somebody else? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe you'll be a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Who knows? Sorry. Jim, did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? No, I just I see I see my esteemed colleague Professor Fulton doing his uh, hair pull for 2021 now. Uh, I couldn't help it. But I think it does, and I mean, and and I think part of our role is if you, you know, and and one of one of my personal, I guess, things is, you know, we maybe we should go 
back even before 1619 and let's bring Native Americans back into this discussion, you know, because that's huge. And, and again, I think what we're talking about is like the selective annihilation of parts of history that we don't care to look at. And and so, you know, then that is just as significant as slavery. You know, we're talking about genocide consciously or unconsciously depending on where when and where you look um and and so i think i think we're you know let's get really honest about the past and that's not saying that that you know because the 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 common slur is well you're just un-american you just don't like american it's like no i just like honesty about america you know there are some things that the united states has done that have been very good you know um and and i'm not you know to, to list one of those, my the first one that comes to my mind, well, we were the arsenal of democracy against Hitler, and I, I think that's a good thing, really. Um, so, but by the same token, let's look at the full vista of things. Let's look at all the facts of the past, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it does go back to that truth and reconciliation idea, like mm-hmm. until until we are willing to accept both the good and the bad, you know, there's going to be this false narrative out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is a, this is a safe space, Jim. You can say Nazis are bad. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Illinois Nazis. <laughs> I hate Nazis. <laughs> I was just watching that like two weeks ago. Um, actually, the day before the Capitol riots that was on, was, was talking about, which I went to Blues Brothers. Um, yeah, so you guys were talking about the political parties. I'm going to go back to being Debbie Downer now here for a second, but we're talking about the political parties. Um, but I, I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't have a discussion about um, the way that, that, that history is being formed by, and at least political history is being formed in this country, if we don't talk about the way that the judiciary is changing, and even by, you know, talking about the idea of the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in September, and um, the way that, that Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, was brilliant, really, um, if you, you know, in, in, in reshaping the court um, in his own image, if you will, um, and the <laughs> court with judges. Um, and, and he was brilliant at it and not allowing justices under, under President Obama to take their seats and basically keeping all these openings, these vacancies open. Um, even while not no, not thinking that in 2016 uh, that they were going to be a Republican president, but when they got one, those openings were there and, and did a great job of, of, of stacking that court. So I, I think it's also really interesting to see how, even though the electorate, we seem to be moving in a different direction as a people and the way that we vote, um, but ideologically, the courts seem to be moving in another direction. And so I wonder how those two are going to kind of jive together. I don't know if, how they're, if they're going to be able to jive. Um, I don't know. I think it's going to be just a really interesting thing. But to say, I, I had to just recognize the notorious RBG. And, uh, and <laughs> what is with all these women having like RBG, M- M- MTG, and AOC? Like this is, are men have, getting any of these nicknames? Nobody is. Like John, John, Donald Trump's not DJT. And he's Donald John Trump. Like, I don't, I don't get this. I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. This is nothing. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, why is this that women are getting these three, these uh, three uh, letter names? Collective laziness. Yeah, I guess so. I guess. I mean, maybe, I mean, I mean but to your, to your, to your other point, though, about the judiciary, you know, that, and and let's not forget that it's not just the Supreme Court; it's also the federal Absolutely. court system I mean. overall. Yeah. And I think that you know one potential consequence of that is if the if the populace continues to go in a more liberal direction you could potentially see you know a constitutional amendment that alters the way the federal judiciary is appointed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to be more in keeping you know right. because people have talked for years also about getting rid of the electoral college mm-hmm. right for the same mm-hmm. for the same sorts of reasons right that it goes mm-hmm. against the general will of the people yeah. um so so that could be one potential outcome of these things because and, and we've seen it before right like you, you the the federalists do the same or 
attempt the same kind of thing with the midnight appointments mm-hmm. um, to, to create a bastion mm-hmm. within the court system to maintain a sort of lock on control of things. But it, uh, but again, and, and in, from the viewpoint, and again, this, I guess, gets back to the whole big picture, right? From the viewpoint of 1800, if you were a Democratic Republican, that looked really, really bad and scary. Now, mm-hmm. looking back at it from 2021, we go, eh. Great. <laughs> no biggie. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, and again, that's, that's the difference in perspective, right? Yeah. Did you want to chime in, Josh, or? Yeah, no, it's the, the interesting thing that I was sort of thinking with, with all of this and McConnell's action and uh, these appointments and the, the death of the sad passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is just, I find the, the public interest in the courts themselves to be kind of interesting. Uh, of, you know, the appointment of Supreme Court justices and our collective in, in a way sort of caring about it in some ways I think is relatively new uh, in that it's only really been in the last generation or two that the public has had any interest in it at all. Uh, and so the fact, yes, that, that any Supreme Court justice, be it RBG or not, you know, becomes a cultural phenomenon uh, is to me, I think, a, a fascinating aspect uh, of, you know, part of, you know, or a component of this, this discussion in that, you know, the assumption, you know, so often uh, was that the courts are in many ways out of sight, out of mind, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless we're, you know, in front of them. Uh, and so, you know, that was just my sort of reaction to, yeah. to some of this. But I, yeah, I mean, the point in terms of the power of McConnell to singularly focus on the courts themselves as this tool to be able to remake and recraft the shape of, of government uh, is, you know, no matter what, you know, the punditry will, will sort of say, you know, there will be uh, need to be an acknowledgement uh, of his ability to achieve that objective. Mm-hmm. That's going to definitely, no, no doubt. Um, and I, I think it's a good thing that people are paying attention more to the Supreme Court because I, as I always try to explain to my students, it affects them every single day, the decisions that are made, and it's, it's the branch that people know the least about, the branch that people care the least about. Um, I'm just curious to see, and it seems like um, Biden is not gonna go down the, the, you know, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt route of you know, attempting to maybe expand the court, or I find it interesting how they still refer to it as the court packing scheme, even to this day, which gives it you know, that, that sort of term. Um, Cause really the third, the, the, the real the truth of the matter is that you don't need a constitutional amendment to expand the court. You know, if he wants to appoint more, appoint more judges, he can. Um, there's nothing saying that, that, that legally speaking that that cannot be done. Um, but anyway, that's, that's another story. Um, I just, I, I am glad though. I'm glad I don't think that Biden will do that. Cause I think that Biden is just too, um, too much of a centrist. I don't think that he's going to be looking to upset the balance of the, too much of the force, if you will. But I will be curious to see though, if like what would happen with FDR Suddenly, you saw a lot of these justices begin to retire in his what's his second term. Second term, yeah. Um, I wonder if you're going to start to see someone like uh, you know a few of these guys begin to retire, or are they going to hold on with their life to the very end, um, like a, like a you know Clarence Thomas? Like I'm not going. I'm not going unless you, <laughs> from my cold dead hands, I'm not. I'm not leaving. <laughs> on the on the other side too, I wonder if on the liberal side, if you're going to see justices like who have been on the court for a little bit longer say, you know, maybe it's time for me to, to, you know, like Breyer, maybe I should go now while there is a democratic president who could replace me as opposed to waiting, you know, you don't know what's gonna happen in 2024. So, and I also do wanna acknowledge since we're talking about RBG, the fact that historically, obviously this is gonna go on in history as having, while we have the oldest president, we also have the first female vice president um, who happens to be a woman of, of Indian um, descent and also of Jamaican descent, which is really cool, kind of a, cool footnote to history there too. So there's been a lot of interesting, interesting things that have happened this year, <laughs> good and bad, but I say that's one of the good ones. I would argue that's one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, you know, it's been interesting in, in, in as much as that, particularly with the vice president, that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to the national conversation in 2008 and the, the election of, of Barack Obama and, and all of this of the, the although it's been acknowledged 
it hasn't been as as large of a conversation uh, as as part of the national political conversation yes. uh, of uh, you know elements of of race and gender with the with the current vice president. Um, you know, in, in some ways, maybe you know, maybe it should. Uh, to have, you know, sort of better conversations about aspects of equity and, and, and sort of things of, um, okay, it took us long enough. Uh, come on, let's go. Uh, but, you know, it's absolutely it's a wonderful thing. Uh, well, but the, we're not that, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm sorry, Josh. I meant like, that's a good thing that maybe we're at a point though where, look, listen, we're here. This is it. It's, we, you know, we don't need to like talk about it to death. That, that it, yeah, that, 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 that when it's eventually, we're, well, that, that no one will notice uh, or, or care in, in terms of that, that will normalize it, uh, which is yeah, good. But it's, but it's um, accepted and, and we've created a new norm, which would be a very positive thing. Yeah, that which is, which would be great. You know, that would be, that would be fun, fundamentally a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think normally it probably would have been a bigger story, but there were so much so many other things to overshadow it. You know, there, mm. was, there was kind of, you know, Donald Trump was this sort of this force that sort of sucked the air out of everything else around him. Um, and so it was I think a lot of these other things that happened. And of course, along with the pandemic, there were so many other things happening at the same time that I think that probably would have been a bigger story, if you will, in this story, had there not been so many other things happening at the same time. Sure. Um, Agreed. So. And I think the the continuing battle over the election's legitimacy that, that ended up in the riots and then the concern that got a, you know, uh, of many Americans going into inauguration day of, okay, what's going to happen today. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, as you said, Mary, it sucked a lot of the energy out of it, but it also was like, okay, well, we've gotten through this. And again, you know, discussion or not, we are creating a new normal just because of the fact that she's sworn in. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I would say that regardless of, of party, I mean, it's, well, let me be honest. If I'm being totally honest, if it was, if it was Marjorie Taylor Greene up there, I'd be a little bit concerned and nervous. But <laughs> if it was like, you know, if it was Liz Cheney, I'd be like, okay, she's at least, you know, sure. believes in reality and doesn't believe that, you know, that Jews have like space lasers that they um, start wildfires with. So I'd be a little bit more inclined to be okay with that, <laughs> with a vice president, Liz Cheney. Sorry, <laughs> couldn't <laughs> on somewhere in, in the footnote of history about the Jewish space lasers. That's got to be said somewhere, you know, even though it's more of a 2021 story. It was still around in 2020, so I think we can include it in our, our circle. <laughs> yeah, that rising anti-Semitism there, that's, uh, that's yeah. not good. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. And, and with that, should we, uh, <laughs> should we <laughs> the Jewish space lasers? Uh, on that note. Yeah. <laughs> Comments, uh, Comments, gentlemen, closing comments, thoughts? Or have we said it all? Anybody else that you, that we, any, any other story that you think that we didn't say, that we didn't talk about? Like we talked about the, we didn't oh, mention- I, I think there's hundreds of other stories, right? That, that you know, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it, it, I think in, in one, one of, I guess my, my final thought would be that, you know, that the dissertations that are going to be written on 2020 will be vast and numerous. Uh, that that the the news cycle every day that we endured was so large and so beyond what we understand often to be normal that it is why um, you know this is going to be a time that is looked at by so many for years to come. Mm-hmm. 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 I think that we're or oh, go ahead, Jim. You want to go first? Well, I, the my only comment at this point would be that you know I think that we've also shown that these events don't just automatically end with the passing of an arbitrarily imposed uh, date. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, like I always point out with when you know when I'm teaching Western Civ one and we go from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, it's like okay, everybody didn't wake up one morning in 1350 and decide they were a humanist now, right? Like uh, <laughs> that the, these events. <laughs> I know I'm shocked. I, I'm sorry, Josh, but it, it is true. Um, but that you know this that that attitudes attitudes are very very slow to change though, and I think that's one of the things that that we've been talking about for this much of this hour right is that a lot of these attitudes that are changing they're they're not the change isn't new it's been a long time in coming and and it's not done yet it's still the change is still going on as we are sitting here and will continue 
to move forward. So those would be my final thoughts. Yeah. And I, my final thought will be, will be um, also uh, part of the fact that I've been jumping up out of my seat for the last minute here because my dog has found something that she's been eating and chewing on some kind of wood that she's getting into and I have no idea what it is. But I think that's also a reflection of where we have been right in 2020. The fact that we've all been part of one another's homes, that we are working and living and, and in a way that we never have in, in ever in the history, in, our, in human history. And I, in a way, I think it's kind of a nice thing. So I think that we've humanized one another quite a bit. I think seeing like having our, even being on uh, sessions with my students and seeing one another's pets and being able to talk about things that are going on in your homes and it's been kind of also a nice thing, a personal thing. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe that brings us to a bit of, of, of humanity left. Um, that being said, I'm also going to say one more Debbie Downer comment, which is I do think that, that this pandemic has left a lot of people with some, some PTSD. I think that's going to be something that, that they're going to be documenting in terms of historians looking at that, that, that we are a generation or a group of people left with some trauma that has to be dealt with because it's uh, yep. there was a lot that happened. When you think about yep. frontline workers and people working in hospitals and, and I know, thank God, I mean, we've had our, our own share of, of things, but you know, none of us are working in, in, in hospitals as, as, you know, either as nurses or doctors and, or as morticians and, and having to see the things that, that people like that are seeing. And um, I think that we are gonna see quite a bit of people who are gonna um, need counseling and just need to acknowledge that this was a, this was a, a, major, a major tragedy. For, for all of us. So on that happy note, <laughs> we're going to bring it in. It's great. It's great. <laughs> and and cut. And scene. That's a wrap, folks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. <laughs>